Good morning. This is lesson 17 in our study of the Gospel of Mark. And as always, I've changed my title. I thought of a new one just sitting here. I may even like it better. Learning to Lead God's Way. I think I had, uh, can we franchise uh, Christianity? And that's uh, not a bad thought, but it's not the central thought of the text as I uh, now consider it. The, uh, I, I've been thinking, my mind's gone back, uh, I, and I, I know I'm hung up on this connecting the dots theme, and, and so you'll have to forgive me for that, but it's become a, a rather big thing for me. And I was thinking back to uh, chapter 8 about this whole issue of leaven. And you remember that that's where Jesus says to the disciples, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus, I don't want to say he gets distracted, but he has to step away from the warning because of the inability of the disciples to think about leaven. So the disciples connect the dots between leaven and lunch. They're saying, who brought the bread? And they're worried about where their lunch is coming from. And so Jesus goes back to the issue of connecting the dots related to the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 because in each case, there was more than enough for those who ate. They were satisfied and there was... Uh, abundance and it was collected and taken up and so Jesus says don't you remember that you had uh, 12 baskets full when I fed the 5,000 I had seven baskets full when I fed the 4,000 and his point is when you're with me you're with the one who provides and he's all sufficient you don't need to worry about lunch but they were so worried about lunch they couldn't think about leaven So they never really asked the question, wait a minute, what was Jesus trying to say to us about the leaven of the Pharisees and about the leaven of Herod that we didn't get? I'm proposing that what Jesus raised at that moment is the issue that is now going to surface in our text, that it's about leadership. Now, if you go back to uh, Matthew chapter 16... And verse 6, Jesus says it just a little differently. He says, watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And if you get down to verse 12, you'll see that the disciples figured it out, that Jesus was talking about their teaching. Now, what we read in our text is not exactly the same wording. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And he doesn't say, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. Now, Herod wasn't a teacher. Would you agree with me? He wasn't a preacher. So Herod's leaven is not teaching. The question then is, what is it? And my perception is, it's Herod's view and practice of leadership. Herod was jealous for his throne. 
And he was fearful about anybody who might take it. Uh, his predecessor, you remember, is the one who had all the babies of the region of Bethlehem killed so that he would uh, rid himself of any threat to his throne. The Pharisees, likewise, not only had bad teaching, they were bad leaders. In fact, if you look through the Gospels at our Lord's indictment of the Pharisees, his indictment comes heavily upon their leadership. Matthew 23 is saying, bad leaders, blind guides. You'll walk a mile, so to speak, to make a disciple, and you'll make him twice as much a product of hell as yourselves. That's bad leadership. And Jesus has a lot to say about that. In John chapter 10, he calls himself the good shepherd because that's in contrast to the bad shepherds. And Jeremiah and the Old Testament prophets had a lot to say about bad shepherding. And the Pharisees were bad leaders. So I'm suggesting to you that the leaven that our Lord is warning the disciples about is the leaven of a wrong concept or conception of what leadership is. And I believe it's a part of this turning point because I believe the rest of the Gospel of Mark is all about our Lord's view of leadership and how it impacts his ministry as well as ours as, as believers. So this is a really critical area. And I have to say to you, if you haven't seen it in the bookstores, the subject of leadership is huge, is it not? I, I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to check this out. So I go out to Amazon.com, and I look under books, and I do a search on leadership. 16,000 hits. That's a whole lot of books and stuff on leadership. And I'll guarantee you, a, a huge percentage of it is diametrically opposed to our text. In fact, I don't know anywhere that you will learn these lessons on leadership more dramatically and more clearly than right here from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is a crucial area. And in fact, it's so critical. I've been asked in times gone by, when I've, when I've preached on a subject, why didn't you spend another uh, week or so on application? You get your wish. I am going to do that. I'm going to start to scratch the itch, but I want to tell you the truth of this text opens up many other portions of Scripture and much of what pertains to our Christian life and a lot as it pertains to our practice as a church with regard to, to leadership. Now, I, I confess, I'm a little extra passionate in one of my extracurricular involvements, <clears throat> besides Bible.org, is a group called uh, Biblical Eldership Resources. And it's uh, a group that seeks to uh, teach and to assist others to practice leadership in the way the New Testament teaches. And this is right at the heart of what that is about. And it is a vitally important thing. I think that many Christians look at leadership and they sort of do it, it, handle it like they do the way the church operates. And it's sort of like, well, there's this way and there's that way. And, you know, you sort of take your pick and whichever one works. That's not the way the Bible teaches it, folks. 
And it all starts here because a biblical view of leadership determines the kind of structure and function a church has. And I really want to lean on that when I get to my my next message uh, two weeks from today, Lord willing. Okay, let's come to what I call yet another troubling statement from Jesus, and that is Jesus keeps raising the question after the great confession. He keeps raising the issue of his suffering and death and resurrection in uh, Jerusalem. So look at what Jesus says here in uh, verses uh, 30 through 32. From there they went out and began to go through Galilee, and he was unwilling for anyone to know about it, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them the Son of Man is to be delivered up into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise again three days later. But they did not understand this statement and they were afraid to ask. (laughs) Yeah, they sure were. Notice a couple of things. One, as John pointed out, Jesus is now heading for Jerusalem. That's clear from chapter 10, verse 1. It's clear from Matthew uh, chapter 19, verses 1 and 2. But the one I like best is Luke 9, 51. I think it's the King James Version that says, He set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem. Jesus is going to Jerusalem. And the reason why he wants to pass by, in a sense, and go through Galilee without gathering big crowds is... His whole ministry for for the majority of the time has been in Galilee. They have heard the message. They have had their opportunity. It is now time for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, present himself, and for the things that Jesus has said to come to pass. And so now his focus is not on public ministry, but on private ministry to his disciples. The things that he is speaking to them about, his suffering, his rejection, his death, and resurrection are things that he tells his disciples. And so he wants a private ministry, and that's why he tries to keep his uh, travels uh, confidential, as it were, and, and private. He returns to the subject that he has raised in chapter 8, and and also picked up earlier in chapter 9 where he talks about the Son of Man suffering many things and being treated with contempt. But he adds one thing. Do you know what it is? Well, you can read it in my notes. Betrayal. Betrayal. He has not said he would be betrayed before. What he said in chapter 8 and verse 31 is, the Son of Man is going to go. He is going to be rejected by Israel's religious leaders, persecuted, put to death, and then rise again. So interestingly, the leadership of Israel is the focus there in terms of our Lord's statement in chapter 8. Here he says, I'm going to be handed over. I think it is this statement, when, when it says the disciples, you, you know, were, were sort of uh, stuck on this statement. I don't think they were stuck on, I'm going to die. I don't think they understood it, but I think they'd heard it. The new part was, not only are the religious leaders going to reject me, but somebody is going to betray me. In my personal opinion, and it's only that, I believe that may well have been the reason why they had the discussion about who is the greatest. Because when you start talking about betrayal and traitors, then you've got to be talking about faithfulness. And surely the one that's greatest is the 
most at least likely to fail, right? So you would think. So here they have uh, this discussion about it. But again, they are not willing to ask Jesus about it. Luke chapter 9 and verse 45 makes this additional statement. Lest we, we say to ourselves, those disciples are so dumb. It says, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Folks, they weren't supposed to understand at this point. It's, it's like, remember when our Lord is on the road to Emmaus with those other two, and he talks to them about all these things and, and whatever, and then I think when he's literally putting the bread out and they see the marks in his hands, their eyes are open and they see. There is a time to see these things. It is not now, but he is setting those things before them and certainly before us. So here comes the embarrassing question. How would you, this is not the question, but just put yourself in the disciples' shoes. How would you like to follow somebody who knew every thought you had? I mean, really? Wouldn't that be horrible to know you know, to have somebody know your thoughts. And, and here's Jesus, and he says to the disciples as they get into the house. Now they're in the privacy, and he says, uh, Hey, guys, noticed you had a little discussion going while we were on our way. What were you talking about? Uh, it, it, the way I see it, nobody volunteered. Nobody volunteered and said, Oh, yeah, Jesus, we're talking about who's the greatest amongst us. Uh-uh, they're not bringing that up. But it's very clear from Jesus' answer, he doesn't have to rely on them. He knows what it is, and he moves right into the, the uh, correction uh, cycle, as it were, because they obviously are fixed on their greatness, and I think on their position. By the way, there were a lot of things that could have been said, were there not? Peter, James, and John could have said to the other nine, didn't see you guys up on the mountain. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even tell you what we saw, but I, I want to tell you, we were there. Peter could have said, hey guys, which one of you did Jesus say, I'll build my church on this rock? Oh, I, I can imagine all the kinds of things that could have gone on with these guys at their moment of uh, inglorious debate. They didn't answer, and Jesus says, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And he says, true greatness is to become the servant of all. <laughs> i got to tell you, folks, that wasn't the gist of their definition of greatness. You know, their greatness is, hey, can I sit on your right hand? Or if I have to, on your left hand? You know, can I be one of those that, that, that has prominence and leadership and power and position and all those things? Jesus says, you want to be truly great? Then you become the servant of all. I personally view this as an extension of his teaching on one saving his life and losing it. In other words, when Jesus says, in effect, you try to save your life, you lose it. You lose your life for my sake, you save it. I believe that becoming the servant of all is dying to self. I think it's an extension and an application of the broader principle that our Lord Jesus has set forth. So Jesus takes this, uh, this child and brings him, draws him near in his arms, and he has a lesson uh, for the disciples from this child. Now, 
I think I need to call your attention to Matthew 18 and verse 4 because he says something there that he does not say here before he gets to what he says here. He says in Matthew 18, 4, unless you become like, if, unless you are converted and become like this child, then you're in trouble. This is the, this is where real greatness is. Real greatness is being converted and being childlike. Now, that is not in our text, but what follows is surely related to that. And that is, he says, to receive this child, in my name is to receive me and to receive my father. Now, personally, and I'll say it again later, I believe this is speaking about somebody who is a believer, somebody who is young and vulnerable. And to receive them, as I understand it, is to take them in in the sense of protection and care. And so he's saying, that's what real greatness is. Oh, i got to tell you this. I was thinking about this in relationship to the whole political thing that's going on. And I told some other folks this story. But when I was a kid growing up, we watched the Gold Cup races in the Northwest. It took place on Lake Washington. And hydroplane races would go. And that was back. There was a hydro that just flipped up there this last August. But I was watching as a kid, about 10 years old, when slow-mo five at 160 became airborne and did a full 360 flip. Lou Fadgel, a driver, fell out. But when they, when those races took place, they had the Lake Washington floating bridge, so you obviously didn't run a boat through that. And then they had an elevated bridge where the boats, the sailboats and stuff could go through and they, it was a drawbridge so that they could move through. In that race, you had what was called a flying start. And a flying start meant you crossed the starting line uh, right here where the race began, nobody started at zero. Everybody wanted to start at 160 miles an hour. So what they did is they would jockey around and they all had their little courses that they would go. And then those guys at the right moment would full throttle those boats and they would come under rooster tail flying high. They'd come under that, that bridge and they, and the guy had to cross the line after the starting gun went off. If he went too early, he's disqualified and he's out of the race. But as fast and as first as he can be. And, and I see that as, as kind of the way in which uh, leadership was viewed in those days and in our days. And so I think about the politicians that are, that are running for office right now. And I don't care whether it's Republican or Democrat or what it is. I see them like those hydroplanes. And those guys are out there milling around in their boats, you know, and whatever. But I want to tell you something. Every one of those candidates who is a serious candidate has somebody who is a kind of manager type. And I will bet if I called every one of those candidates, I would not get an appointment with any of them. Now, if I happen to have a lot of money, if I happened to have a lot of influence and if they were really desperate for my vote and thought they could get it, I'd at least get a wave of the hand. What I'm saying is, you know, you can see in the political scene that they're looking for the big fish. So were the disciples. And children didn't fit into the move up in the power circuit uh, 
syndrome. It just didn't fit. Little kids were a pain. They were not a plus. And that's why the disciples, I believe, said to Jesus when he talked about the uh, the uncleanness coming from without, uh, from within rather than from without, the disciples took Jesus aside and said, did you know you offended those guys? Why did they care? Why did they care? Because they were the power brokers of the day. They were concerned about what powerful people thought. They weren't concerned about children. In fact, in chapter 10, what's going to happen? Children are going to come to Jesus and the disciples are going to shoo them away. See, they're a pain. They're not a plus. Jesus turns that upside down and says, you need to behave in exactly the opposite way. They are helpless. They are weak. They are needy. They don't help you in a political campaign. But in my way of service, they're exactly who your focus ought to be on. Well, I'm going to go into that a little bit more when we get into my next message. But he's saying, you need to focus on those who are weak, vulnerable, needy. Now, here's where John begins to connect some dots. And, and, and John's, I think, I, my, my assumption is that John understands Jesus is not just talking about little kids that Jesus is talking about those who are new, let's call them baby Christians, okay? Baby Christians. Not just little children, those two, but baby Christians. So he begins to hear what Jesus is saying about not being a hindrance, but being a help. And John says to himself, "Uh, Jesus, I think there's something that we need to talk to you about. There was this guy who was out casting out demons in your name. And we told him to knock it off because he was not following, doesn't say you, he was not following us. That's why I talked about the franchise. See, the disciples thought that they had the franchise on marketing Jesus. (laughs) But they didn't. They didn't. It wasn't whether or not somebody followed them. It was whether or not somebody followed Jesus and acted in his name. That's exactly the mindset of the Pharisees. The Pharisees thought they were the accreditation board for religion in Israel. And if Jesus didn't pass their test and jump through their hoops, he was out. So here's that mindset. Oh, here's the other thing that's just a teehee for me. He was successful. It doesn't say he, notice who tries and who fails. He did not try to cast out demons. He did it. Isn't that what the text says? They tried to stop him. And I get the distinct impression it didn't work. Here's the funny part to me. Where have we been Recently, in chapter 9, in this realm of casting out demons, if the disciples were accrediting people on the basis of how successful they were at deliverance from demons, they just flunked their major exam. Here's the guy with his son who has a demon and they can't cast him out. 
And I can imagine maybe that added to their fervor when they see some guy who isn't even part of their group. He's doing it. They didn't. Well, anyway, there's that private club mentality. He wasn't following us, so they attempted to stop him. And the question seems to me to be, did we do okay, Jesus? (laughs) What do you say about this? How does this fit into this whole thing about hindering other people? And uh, Jesus says, leave him alone. Leave him alone. Why? Well, because anybody who is casting out demons in the name of Jesus is not going to speak against Jesus, is he? He's not going to soon speak against me, Jesus says. Let him be. The second thing is, if he's not against us, he's for us. That's an interesting twist on what Jesus said back when he was being accused of casting out demons through Satan's power. He says, then if he's not for us, they're against us. But that was when he was being accused of acting in Satan's power. In this case, and especially after this much passing of time, if this man is doing what he's doing, he's not opposed. Leave him alone. And then he says, in effect, those who assist will not lose their reward. He basically says, if someone gives you a cup of water, cold water, then they will not lose their reward. That person, by giving a cup of cold water or giving you a place to stay and so on, as the disciples would do and as happened with the apostles in the book of Acts, they gave you assistance. They became partners with you in what you did. And it seems to me Jesus is saying, this man's doing the same thing you are. (laughs) He's helping. In fact, he's he's helping you a lot because you haven't done too well at casting out demons lately. But... He's helping. He won't lose his reward for being a part of all of this. You know, all of this sounds long ago and far away. I cannot tell you how much jealousy there is in Christian ministry. Well, look at John the Baptist. Here's John the Baptist and his disciples come to him and say, John, Jesus, his followers are baptizing more people than we are. Oh, God forbid. You know, it's like, this is a terrible thing. Jealousy. It's it's interesting and it's sad. And I want to say, I'm not saying them, I'm saying me. I find in myself, when I read about the success of some other Christian, I have to battle with that feeling of jealousy or envy, of actually belittling their success. Because it wasn't... In this group. That was the way it was then. And that is the way it is today. These words are pertinent. The importance of dealing decisively with the source of stumbling. Here's what's interesting. Jesus will say, it is a serious matter to cause one of these little ones to stumble, right? Very serious. You want to know how serious it is? It's so serious that if you could prevent it, you'd cut off a hand or a foot or pluck out an eye. (laughs) That's serious. And he talks in, in, in the description he gives as though to fail to take action is to head for hell. Man, doesn't get more serious than that. This is serious stuff. But he moves from the impersonal to the personal, and he basically says, 
you know, whoever does this to you and your. If your hand causes you to stumble, if your eye is the source of offense, if your foot, what he's done is he's moved from the abstract to the concrete. It is a serious thing to cause another to stumble. I think especially a young, vulnerable, immature believer. It's a serious thing. And if you are the one who causes that stumbling, then you'd better deal with that seriously for what it means for you. And by the way, in my, in my way of reading this, you don't cause somebody to stumble without stumbling yourself. You don't cause somebody to stumble without stumbling yourself. My mom has an artificial limb. They were walking up to the mailbox, and uh, it was up a hill, and it was gravelly road, and a, and a car turned down the driveway and was coming down, sort of quick, but not dangerously so. And both my mom and my dad moved quickly to move off the road, and they both were off balance, and they both toppled on top of each other. <laughs> All right, in the middle of the road. And classic for my mom and dad, they laid there and laughed. Because that was about all you could do. My point is that you, when you stumble, you obviously are not now the supportive influence for somebody else. So when a Christian fails, it often becomes an occasion to cause others to stumble. That's what Asaph says in Psalm 73. If I had done what I was thinking about, I would have betrayed this generation of your children. How many times have Christian leaders failed and other people have said, well, if they can fail, so can I. So Jesus is saying, you better watch out for yourself and take drastic action. Is this literal? Should we go out and buy ourselves saws or knives that do a little amputation work on ourselves? It's, it's phrased in a way that is very graphic and, and no one can walk away saying this is some light matter, right? It's phrased to, for us to take seriously. We know from Mark chapter 7 that the source of sin is not external. It is not my hand that makes me sin. It is not my eye that makes me sin. It is my heart. <laughs> so the reality is if you want to deal with sin, you've got to have a heart transplant. That's the thing needs cut out. You can't do it. But what he's saying is if you could, it would be better to remove a hand than to fail to deal with that which causes you and others to fail. Why this talk about hell? One, it, because the disciples are believers. First, not all of them are. And Judas in particular. Uh, he ought to hear about hell and its warnings. Um, this is where the path of sin leads. Romans chapter 6 is very interesting. And the question is, you know, if, in effect, if I've been saved, then can I just live any way I want? And what Paul says is, no, in Christ you died to sin, you were buried, and you were raised to newness of life. How can you who have died to sin continue to live in it? And then he goes on to say, in effect, if you are walking the path of sin, that path leads to hell. Does it not? Does the path of sin not always lead to hell? So the warning to a believer who's on that path is, partner, you're going the wrong way. 
And you better think about the direction you're going. That's what I see. So this is a way of underscoring the severity of taking sin lightly in our lives and therefore impacting other people negatively. So the logic that I see is this. I should help others rather than causing them to stumble, rather than hindering them. I should deal decisively with those things in my life which are a source of stumbling for me because my stumbling will cause others to stumble. And by going easy on sin in my life, I predispose myself to be a stumbling block to others. Now, here's what I call my toughest text. And that's the the salt part. And by the way, it's interesting to read the commentaries and then put them away in disgust because they don't give you a lot of help here. Here's my assumptions. One, whatever Jesus is saying here, verses 49 and 50 are the conclusion of his argument. Is that Does that not seem logical to you? Now, I know that chapters are arbitrary. But verses 49 and 50 are the conclusion. He's going to move to something else in the first verse of chapter 10. Surely the conclusion, would you not think that I was somewhat weird if I went through this message and in my conclusion went off totally to some other subject? Well, don't don't go, don't say it. (laughs) I may do that sometimes, but that's not the way to go. See, it's, it's gotta be consistent and the major topic is leadership. Leadership. Who is the greatest? That's the topic, so that must be what this salt business is about. Two. Whatever Jesus means by saltiness here, must be consistent with what he meant by it wherever else he used it. Two other passages. The one in Luke 14 has to do with with, uh, following uh, the Lord Jesus. The one that's most clear in our minds is in Matthew chapter 5. And he's talking about persecution. And then he says, "What you are, you are the salt. And, and what if the salt loses its saltiness? How do you restore that? And then he goes on to say, you are light. And light is not placed under a bushel basket. It's put out in the open so that its light goes out into the darkness. In my opinion, everywhere that Jesus talks about salt, he's talking about being distinct. Salt is distinct. And interestingly, when you put salt on something else, it helps to bring out the distinctiveness of whatever that is. A piece of meat. Some of you like it on your watermelon. I haven't gotten that far yet. But, but, but people don't put salt on watermelon so they won't taste the watermelon. They put it on watermelon so that they'll taste more watermelon than they would have otherwise. Salt is distinctive. And when Jesus says, if you lose your distinctiveness and your salt, then what value are you? So, what is the distinctiveness that we have here? He says, number one in verse 49, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, it's really fire that's the primary uh, word here as I see it. And if you look up in the text, you will see that he's talked about going into hell. That is the unquenchable fire, verse 43. So, I take it, 
that fire is, is one, if everyone is going to be experiencing fire, then fire will be experienced by unbelievers. Because he just said it. Revelation describes it as well. But he says everyone will be salted with fire. Here's the way I understand that. One, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, talks about the purification of our faith. And how is our faith purified? By the fire of adversity, right? Fire tests us and brings out the distinctiveness of what we are as a Christian, or ideally it does. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which is the text I'm going to deal with next time, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, there's this issue of, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. It sounds like the debate of the disciples going all over again. Who's the greatest? And whoever's the greatest is whoever follows the greatest. But what he says is, one person sows, another person waters, and God gives the growth. So that evangelism is not the work of one person. It is the work of a team of people, a body of people. And... Uh, So he then says in chapter uh, 3, verses 10 through 15, all of our work will be tested. How we build on the foundation that is laid by the apostle, how we build on the gospel, how we build the church is going to be tested and fire is going to either prove our work to be wood, hay, and stubble, it's gone, or gold, silver, precious stone. So therefore, every believer is tested by fire not in terms of their eternal salvation, in term, terms of, of the work which they have done and the value and the rewards they receive. So everyone will be salted with fire. And so what Jesus is saying is, I just talked about judgment. I wasn't just talking about judgment with respect to unbelievers. I'm saying there is judgment of all in this matter, and therefore you ought to take it seriously. Now, verse 15. Uh, 50. Salt is good, but if salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? What's the emphasis? It's distinctiveness. If salt loses its distinctiveness, it has no value. And how do you restore it back from unsalty to salty? You know, you may spread it on the path to to melt the snow or whatever. It won't have the value that it should or could. I think that Jesus is therefore saying this. Jesus' teaching on leadership is absolutely unlike any other teaching in the world. It is absolutely distinct. No secular book is going to tell you that you ought to ignore those or at least not make a priority of those who who can uh, benefit you. Remember when Jesus talks about a banquet and he says, when you have a banquet, don't invite the people who have you over and have even better food than you did. Invite the people over who can't repay you. That's the way it is with leadership. You focus on those who are in need, not those who can meet your needs, those who are are in need. And so that is being distinct. That is setting the Christian apart from everybody else. A Christian leader who follows this text will stand out 
like a sore thumb amongst leaders in this world. That's what being salty means. And with this view, my friend, you will have peace. Every other view of leadership has competition and backbiting and struggles. Why? Because everybody's trying to climb up the ladder on the backs of everybody else. This one says, if you are going to be the greatest, you become the servant of all. You choose the bottom, folks. There's no competition there. And you set yourselves apart. And with men like that, you'll have peace. I'm going to steal a piece of my thunder from next time and say this. How is it that a group of men at Community Bible Chapel can be leaders as long as we have, as they have, and live in the kind of peace that we do. It's only by this manner of leadership. And I can't tell you the number of churches who have split. It's probably the number one source of issue is power struggles within leadership. This is the key, my friend, the key to how a church like ours and every church ought to function. All right, I'm getting uh, carried away, and it's time to wind down. And I know I've got one more shot at you, so I don't have to say it all today. One, conclusion. This text helps me understand why it is that Peter and the rest of the disciples didn't want to hear anything about Jesus' suffering and death. This text helps me understand. Do you think that Peter... At the moment that he took, took Jesus aside and starts rebuking him because he's saying he's going to suffer and, and die and so on, do you think that Peter's saying, boy, that's the life for me. That's the way I want to go. What Peter's saying is, wait a minute, I'm following you. And if you're going that way, that means i got to follow that way and I don't want to go that way. It's a whole different way of thinking. It helps me understand the resistance that we saw right after the Great Confession. And it helps me understand why it takes eight more chapters for Mark to finally get it through our thick heads that Jesus' leadership style is diametrically opposed to any other style on this earth, ever. It is unique. The... uh, Christian view of leadership now makes sense of the cross of Calvary. Does it not? The cross didn't make sense to Peter. When you suddenly see leadership as service and sacrifice, the cross makes all the sense in the world. But it's because Jesus first has this view. This is his view of leadership. That's what I'm trying to say. This is not just the view of leadership Jesus imposes on us. This is the leadership of Jesus that imposes his death on him. And therefore, anyone who follows him must follow in that way. In the Gospel of Mark, the key term is not believe in me, though that is a great term. And you see it in John. It's follow. Follow me. What leader, what leader would you rather follow than him? What leader could be a better leader for us?
to give our lives to and to follow wherever it leads than this kind of leader. I was reminded, I know it's not Mark, Matthew chapter 11. Isn't there something especially appealing to what Jesus says, contrasting Jesus with the Pharisees, with Herod too, in his leadership style? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. Isn't Jesus describing there a leadership that is totally different from any other leadership in this world? And so the question has to be, why would we not follow him? Why would we not follow him? I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to raise the question for you. If you happen to be here this morning, and you really haven't chosen to follow him, you haven't trusted in his death, the idea of him dying on the cross of Calvary and bearing your sins may have been a repulsive thought. And the fact that he calls upon those who follow him to take up their cross, that isn't such a hot thought either for an unbeliever. But here is the one who has lived out this leadership through the cross. And he is the one who says to you, follow me. Now, obviously, that means believing in him. But it means more than that. It means embracing that kind of leadership in him and for us. I'll say one more thing. I find this text interesting. I heard uh, something about, well, we didn't have junior church today. But this is a time, as you know, when children's ministry starts firing up. It really does give pause for thought. I don't know how many times I've heard in years gone by somebody say, well, I really wanted some more significant ministry than working with the children. What do you think this text says about working with our children? What do you think it says? I think it says a lot. And and if our problem has been that somehow it doesn't look significant enough, the problem is not with the ministry. The problem is with our mindset. Father, help us to uh, take this text to heart. Help us as we pursue it even further to really see how important this is. Thank you that the Lord Jesus is the one who not only set forth a totally different view of leadership, but lived it. May we follow him. Father, I thank you now for the time of fellowship that's going to follow and the the potluck dinner, and I pray that our fellowship would be sweet. I pray that you would bless the food to the strengthening of our bodies and that the Lord Jesus would... uh, would give us unity and fellowship with one another. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.